Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. Dale Earnhardt. It's the name that brings forth a variety of thoughts to mind. First, there are the on-track descriptions of the seven-time Cup Series champion. Determined, aggressive, stubborn, tough, cocky, unnerving, successful, and winner. He was larger than life with a swagger and a smooth style that spoke volumes without having to say a word. And some drivers would even see his black Chevrolet coming up in their rearview mirror and crash all by themselves because they knew they were next on his list. It was sort of like watching a shark coming from the deep waters, and there was nothing they could do about it. He would pass, look out the right side window of his car to the damaged sheet metal of their car, and just kind of offer that trademark crook grin of his and hit the throttle. He was a winner and champion at the top of his game and the aggressor from Kannapolis, North Carolina. The early years of his career as a race driver were extremely lean while desperate to make a name for himself desperate to make something work. Racing cars cost money and lots of it, they'll have very little to work with. Many personal sacrifices were made to make the dream of being a success in NASCAR's top Grand National, now Cup Series division, come to fruition. The plan had to work. If it didn't, it meant a life of doing something he hated as a career, and that was working in a cotton mill while watching others succeed in racing a scenario was, that was absolutely unacceptable. With the untimely death of his father, Ralph Earnhardt, in September of 1973, Bill's world collapsed. He had to make it on his own. With the help of Humpy Wheeler, former president and general manager of Charlotte Motor Speedway, some early rides came his way. The pieces of the puzzle finally began to come together in the mid-1970s. After joining Richard Childers for 10 races in 1981 and again beginning full-time in 1984, the success he dreamed of finding finally became a reality, collecting 67 of his 76 career victories and six of his seven career championships with Childers. His first Cup Series title came with team owner Rod Osterlin in 1980, as did Rookie of the Year honors in 1979. There is so much to say about Dale Earnhardt, the person and the competitor and champion. He is truly the success story above all success stories in NASCAR history, beating impossible odds when they were stacked so heavily against him. That's why millions of fans around the world loved him so much and hurt so very deeply when he died during a crash on the final lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. Even today, when the odds are against us, we can still look back at his life and what he accomplished and find hope that maybe there's a way to make it work when the odds are against all of us. He set an example to never give up. It was something he truly believed in. Never, ever give up.
keep trying, keep going. What an inspiration in a world where there are so very few true genuine heroes that we can look up to. Two decades after his death, Dale Earnhardt is still in our minds and in our hearts. He will be forever remembered. Welcome back to this edition of A Lifetime in NASCAR Podcast. It's edition number 57 or episode number 57. I'm Jerry Bunkowski along with my good buddy Ben White, and we have got a very, very special show for you. Every show is special, but this one in particular because we're going to be talking almost the entire uh, hour or so about Dale Earnhardt, you know, obviously one of the, the greatest drivers in the sport of NASCAR, uh, still a big fan favorite, even though he, we lost him you know, over 20 years ago. But uh, Ben has done, uh, he's burned the mid- midnight oil on a lot of good stats that a lot of you know, fans may not be quite aware of. So you're definitely going to come out away from today learning a lot more about Dale Earnhardt than you may have already known. So Ben, before we get into the Earnhardt uh, part of the uh, the conversation, you know, as we always do every week, we talk about the, you know the episode number in conjunction with a car number, and of course, this being episode number fifty seven, we are going to talk about car number fifty seven, and you know, it's it's a unique car because the, uh, I was looking through a racing reference, and this car has made two hundred ninety nine starts, but it has not made a start in NASCAR Cup competition. Since 2003, Kevin LePage, who I'm trying to reach out to for another story I'm working on, um, was, excuse me, was the last person to drive the 20, the uh, the number 57. But it all started way back when, and you can fill us in on, on who was the first driver of the 57 and what he did in that first car and when it was. Well, sure will, Jerry. And you know, actually, 71 years ago, February 11th, 1951, a gentleman by the name of Felix Wilkes drove a Hudson Hornet uh, and started, believe it or not, started 57th, finished 23rd. Uh, it was a race on the well, a track we talk about so much during the, the podcast, the Daytona Beach and Road Course. It was a 160-mile race there in Daytona Beach. And uh, it was a, a race that, uh, like I say, he started 57th in that event. And, uh, you know, talk about a Hudson Hornet. It was a car that uh, a lot of drivers liked to drive back in the day. Actually, uh, Herb Thomas and, and Marshall Teague, those two drivers sort of made it famous. And what was so great about the Hudson, it was sort of a, a center of gravity sort of type kind of car that set low to the ground and, and actually handled really well on the beach course because, uh, like I say, it was just uh, handled really well on the sand and actually handled well on the, on the short tracks as well. But uh, uh, Felix Wilkes was a driver that uh, didn't run that many races in NASCAR, but that's the car that he chose and, and ran number 57 again on February 11th, 1951 there. And uh, like I say, uh, a lot of, a lot of years ago, 71 years ago in 1951, the, uh, let's see, uh, third season of NASCAR's strictly stock competition, which was later called the Grand Nationals. Uh, and uh, he, he ran just a handful of races, but uh, he, he is credited for running number 57 for the very first time. Right. And, you know, the number 57, 
uh, according to my stats here, and I just had it now. Here it is. So it made 298 starts, zero wins, 12 top fives, 42 top tens, and two poles. And, you know, uh, there were some pretty notable names that piloted this car over the years. Uh, Jimmy Spencer was one of the bigger names that, uh, um, you know, had, was uh, drove this car. And then we also had Hut Strickland was in there. Uh, as I mentioned, Kevin LePage, you know, he was the last one to, to drive the car back in 2003, the number 57. Morgan Shepard was another one that, uh, that drove that car. So, um, and like I said, Jimmy Spencer, and uh, Brett Bodine and Derek Cope, they both uh, drove that car once or twice, you know, in their careers as well, too. So yeah. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I have to wonder, you know, we've talked about this with other numbers in the past that, you know, why a car is not used for a, an extended period of time. I mean, here we're talking about a car that hasn't been run for 19 or a car number has not been run for 19 years. You got to wonder, is there a jinx to it? And and. I guess maybe the jinx would be the fact that it's never won a race. <laughs> you know, 298 yeah. starts, never won a race. It, that's yeah. I, If I'm a, a team owner and if I'm going to go to NASCAR requesting a car number, I think that if they offered up 57, I'd say, eh, let's try something else, you know? So. Yeah, well, it could, it could be, Jared. I didn't mean to cut you off there, but it could be. But, you know, an interesting side story, this number was, uh, and we're going to talk about Dale Earnhardt quite a bit today, but, you know, back when Rod Osterland gave Dale Earnhardt his, quote, big break in NASCAR, uh, they ran car number two. And, and a side story to that, the reason they ran number two is because when Roger Penske got out of NASCAR uh, in 1978, uh, after running, he ran the Matador with Bobby Allison and Mark Donahue, and then he ran the the number two, uh, Cam uh, to Mercury with Bobby Allison after the Matador went away, well, the car number was number two. He stepped away from NASCAR, and of course, by doing so, the car number stayed with the team, and uh, he sold that uh, particular race team to Rod Osterlin. Well, that's how Dale Earnhardt got the number two uh, when he started in 1978-79, rookie year. Of course, 1980 wins, wins the championship with Osterlin. Well, Osterland uh, stepped away from NASCAR. Then he comes back uh, in 1989 for a season or two. Well, ironically, uh, he gets uh, car number 57, and that's, of course, today's podcast number 57. Well, he picks up the Heinz Ketchup sponsorship. Heinz 57 uh, was one of their brands. And uh, so he says, hey, great. I got car number 57. I'm going to have Heinz 57 as my sponsor. And so the, the car is painted that uh, deep, uh, kind of a dark ketchup red, cherry red. And uh, so that car was run uh, for a couple of seasons or a season by Hut Strickland and Jimmy Spencer drove the car. So it's one of those situations to where we've talked about this on the podcast before, to where you have a particular number that matches a particular sponsor. We saw that with the 7-Eleven sponsorship with the Wood Brothers in the early 80s. And this mm -hmm. is another, you know, one of those great examples of how that happened. But, you know, ironically, how Rod Osterland, uh, like I said, uh, teamed with Dale Earnhardt. And that's our topic uh, for, for a good bit of the show today. But 57 uh, and the sponsor with Heinz uh, 57. Uh, just happened to come together, and and he did come back. For, uh, Rod Osterlin did come back for a couple of seasons with that. Didn't have quite the success he had the first time with Earnhardt, 
but uh, it, it was a, a perfect marriage, perfect match to have the number uh, match up with the sponsor and then and the rest, as they say, is history. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that, and that, and that, that is an interesting angle, the, the Heinz 57. You wonder why, you know, why don't they come back to, to NASCAR now? I mean, that would be a great number. I mean, you know, I know uh, a certain uh, driver of a uh, candy ca- car, number 18, I'll, I won't mention, well, I'll mention his name, Kyle Busch, obviously looking for a new sponsor with uh, Mars and M&M uh, leaving uh, M&M's Mars. M&M Mars, how do they say it? M&M Mars, I guess, is the way the company is. Mm-hmm. They're leaving at the end of the yeah. season. I mean, hey, let's change the 18 to 57 and have Heinz 57 sponsored. I mean, I'm just you know, absolutely thinking outside of the box here, you know. I mean, I, I think that yeah. we could almost guarantee then that that number will finally get a win if Kyle Bush were to take it over. But that's oh, you know, yeah. we're, we're just speculating here, obviously, too. So but right. But, you know, um, the one thing that I really am looking forward to and, you know, I know you've been looking forward to it. You've done a lot of great research about it for uh, for this week's show is this is a special edition of Dale Earnhardt. And, you know, you mentioned about how Osterlin had the 57, but, you know, Dale Earnhardt, um, you know, and his history with Rod Osterlin, I mean, uh, you know, Earnhardt was just such a phenomenal uh, individual. I mean, you know, not only did he drive the two, he drove the three, he drove the fit, you know, he, he drove a couple other ones. Um, but, you know, the when we look at Dale Earnhardt, just when you think you know everything about him, you've read everything about him, and Ben, you you did a great job in some of the stuff you found today. You found stuff that a lot of people I don't think really know uh, about, and I know I didn't uh, know some of these things as well, too. So I, I guess the best place to start off with is, you know, let's let's go back to the beginning with Dale Earnhardt. I mean, you know, going back with, uh, you know, his father, uh, Ralph, you know, he, he kind of learned racing from his father. He learned how to work on cars. Um, there, you know, it was a, it was kind of a difficult, uh, relationship at times, uh, because obviously Dale, uh, was very, um, uh, you know, kind of, he was kind of bullheaded at times, but, you know, he, he felt that he wanted to, you know, become a race car driver. Ralph tried to uh, convince him otherwise to, you know, have a, a good job, get a, you know, get a good, uh, paying job. And of course, you know, the rest is history with what Dale Earnhardt, uh, uh, senior was able to do, but, let's let's go back to the beginning tell us about you know your thoughts about Earnhardt the way he started off and some of the things you've come up with some of those uh, interesting facts about him too but way back in the yeah day. well sure will well uh, talking about Dale you know from the very beginning I think a good place to start I thought it was really interesting when when he grew up he grew up on the corner of V8 and Sedan Street there in Kannapolis how, how fitting was that you know to have uh, the house at the corner of those two streets, V8 and Sedan Street. That's interesting. That is really yeah, and little little white house there with a really a small uh, shop behind that. And you know, Ralph Earnhardt, his dad, worked in a mill there in Canapolis. And this is for some folks that a lot of people know the story of Dale Earnhardt and his family. Some don't. And so, very briefly, in a nutshell, I'll sort of explain some of this. And his dad worked in a mill and absolutely hated it. And you know, he went to uh, Dale's mother, Martha, and said, look, I, this is not what I want to do. You know how much I love racing. Uh, I, I really want to make a living doing you know, racing cars. And, you know, she has had said many times before her passing that she threatened to leave him several times, you know, because he said, I want to race. And she didn't think that was going to support the family. But he knew how important it was, first and foremost, to support the family. And he said, if I'm going to do this, I got to get every give everything I have to it, and he did. 
he was very successful on the uh, on the short tracks of North Carolina. Had to be because he wanted to again support his family. He did run some uh, some Cup Series races for such team owners as Cotton Owens, uh, some a couple of other people, and and was successful. But even Dale himself told me he said my dad just was not into the politics of NASCAR and he wasn't good in the boardroom, meaning that he was not one of those types that could go in and really negotiate any kind of uh, great big, you know, sponsorship type things. He didn't feel real comfortable doing that, but he felt really comfortable on the short tracks. He loved racing on the short tracks. And the one thing that uh, he wanted Dale to do is he begged him, please, please go and get, at least get your high school education. Well, Dale, from the very early days of uh, racing, uh, or I say racing, but pretending he was racing bicycles <laughs> with his brothers and friends on the streets of Kannapolis at a very young age, six, seven, eight years old. That's all he would think about breathing and eating and loving racing. Well, he, he did not finish high school. And, you know, and later on, and we, Dale and I had some very intimate talks about things. He was a good friend to me, I'm proud to say. And he told me with tears in his eyes, he said, I really wish I had finished high school. And my dad begged me to, and we had some not so good conversations about that. And as time went on, as I got older and wiser and realized uh, that was something I should have done. And that's the biggest, biggest, biggest regret of my life is I didn't listen to my dad in that particular situation. And then in September of 1973, his dad passed away of a heart attack. Movies and books and these things have said Dale walked into the shop one day and found his dad, you know, in the shop from a heart attack. That did not happen that way. He told me himself he was driving to a job in Wilmington in a boiler plant and the state North Carolina state highway patrol stopped him and at the request of his family and told him what had happened that his father had passed away. And so he went back to Kannapolis, uh, but they found him on the highway on the interstate and, and stopped him and told him the news. It didn't happen the way that all these new movies and books have portrayed and so that was a huge blow to Dale, and he had hoped that his dad would help him to get a career going and, uh, you know, be there to be the rock and the foundation behind his career. Well, his dad passed away at 45 years old, and, and he basically left him with virtually nothing. I mean, some race cars in a shop, but, you know, he was relying on him for advice and relying on him for maybe some connections, and so Dale did it the hard way and, and uh, it, it was tough. And I mean, when I say tough, I mean, pay the power bill uh, or go hungry or race. And it was very difficult for Dale in those early years. The, you know, the relationship that he had with his father, um, you know, his father was such a wealth of information when it came to racing, but they did butt heads a lot too, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, they did. They, I mean, I, you know, Ralph loved Dale dearly and he wanted the best for his son, just like all of us, you know, you've got children, I've got a son and a and I've got a grandson and a granddaughter on the way. And, you know, you always have this mentality as a parent that you want your child to do better 
than you did in your life. And that's, that's the, the love from your children. You want that so badly for them. And sometimes you have to step back just a little bit and, and let them make some mistakes. And, yep. but, but you don't want them to make really big mistakes. You know, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll share a quick one with you. I remember my son, I love him dearly. My son was dating a young lady and, uh, they just weren't getting along. <laughs> and I finally, I was trying to find a way to tell him you're not getting along with her. And I told him, I said, listen, I said, Ray Charles can see this is not going to work. <laughs> you know? And, and finally he looked at me and grinned and he got it, you know, but I said, you got, you're just, y'all are fighting all the time. And so he did, they did not get together. He married a young lady that I love dearly. And, and now she's my daughter-in-law, but the point I'm trying to make is there's just times you have to step back and there's times that you have to say something. Right. And so in Dale and Ralph's case, I mean, he, he tried to give him a little bit of leeway there, but there was just times he had to say, Dale, you have to put this responsibility uh, ahead of this responsibility, your family and children, you have to take care of them and, and you have to make sure that they're taken care of before you race. Well, Dale did that to a degree, but he also wanted to make sure his career was on, on tap and make sure it was handled correctly too. And of course, uh, you know, there's some regret, regrets there that he was married twice and some, you know, I mean, I don't want to judge that, but I'm just saying that there were times that he put his racing out there, uh, you know, trying to get something going and it was, mm -hmm. but you got to understand in Dale's defense, I mean, he had virtually nothing. And he, and I admired the fact that he, he was dedicated to his racing and, and tried to get something going with absolutely nothing. I mean, when I say nothing, nothing, Right. I mean, and it was tough, very tough for him. And, and I admire as far as he did go, there were sacrifices that had to be made, but, uh, anyway, we, you know, it, it was, it was very difficult for, for him in those early years and had to get the right brakes. But I mean, he was the kind of guy on the short tracks that he would have a flat tire on his late model car and he'd go in uh, into the pits and he'd make pit stops. So he'd be a lap down, maybe two laps down. And then within 25 or so laps, he's back in the lead, that kind of driver. He had immense talent uh, on the short tracks. And, and that's what happened when, Rod Osterlin came along, a California businessman who said, this guy's got something really, really special. You know, he wasn't just about getting in the race car. He had this incredible talent, not only to drive a car, but he knew everything on a car to make it uh, perform on the racetrack. He could take a 10th place car and win with it just about anywhere. Right. You know, going back to what you said about Ralph and Dale, about um, Dale uh, regretting that he never got his high school diploma that played a big part in his um, uh, teaching Dale Jr. because he sent Dale Jr. away to what was a military school for, yeah. uh, and, and because he wanted to make sure that he stayed on kind of the straight and narrow to get his, uh, his diploma as well, too. Can you talk a little bit about that, too? Yeah, he, he did. And, and you see that situation Let's see how I can say this correctly. It, they, you know, uh, Kelly and, and Dale and uh, uh, Carrie also, I mean, it sort of appeared in Dale's life at the time when it was, he had just arrived in the Cup Series. Mm -hmm. Okay. It, it, things were starting to click and, 
And then uh, as fate would have it here, suddenly there they are. And it's like, okay, I know I have a responsibility to these children, but here's my career. You know, I mean, this is what I've worked so hard for. So kind of split between how do I handle this correctly and how do I keep my career going that I've worked so hard for? He did it correctly. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted, but he wanted the best for his children. And he, this is what you have to understand. Dale, the man in black, the intimidator, uh, this tough, uh, swagger sort of guy, that was one thing that was a marketing thing. And yeah, he was really tough on the racetrack, but the man had a heart of gold. And I know that personally for some, uh, some things he did for me and my family mm-hmm. away from the racetrack. A very caring uh when my family needed a little extra here and there aside from being a newspaper reporter and magazine reporter and driver uh i could say from a personal level that he really cared about me and my family he did some things for me and my wife and my family when she was extremely sick uh, with cancer and when i needed to get home from dover delaware in 1991 i needed a jet he said you can have mine Wow. Without hesitation. And it ended up being, I used Richard Childress's jet, but I mean, he's like, you need to go home to be with your wife. Here's my jet. Basically here's the keys. Right. You know, (laughs) it's like, okay. And I mean, he was just that kind of guy. If you needed anything at all, but, but see, that's the thing about Dale. He didn't want anybody to know. Uh, he wasn't the type of guy that said, I want you to, here's a million dollars for a hospital. And I want you to put Dale Earnhardt medical wing. That wasn't Dale. He didn't mm-hmm. want anything. Uh, he didn't want credit for what he did. He just wanted to, but he would always say, no, don't tell anybody about this. Not that, you know, he was trying to be secretive, but that's the way biblically, that's what he wanted. You know, I don't want credit for this. Mm-hmm. I just want to help you if I can help you. You know, because in the early days, he didn't have anything. And now a multi multi-millionaire because of his racing, I want to give something back. And I'll, and I'll take that another step further to say that when he was, uh, had the ability to say for Easter Sunday, for Christmas services at his church, he, he and I were both are, were Lutheran. I'm of the Lutheran faith and he mm-hmm. was too. Mm-hmm. He would just, he would go to church and say, look, I just want to usher at church today. Okay. I'm not Dale Earnhardt. I'm not a seven time champion. I didn't win 76 races. I just want to be an usher. Can I be an usher? And I was like, yeah, sure. And so he would usher at church and he would be there for those services or time or the weeks that he was off. If he could be, he would be in church to do that. I don't want to be a superstar today. I just want to usher and I want to serve the Lord. And I want to be, you know, cause he was, he was of the Lutheran faith and he, had, he was, um, he had a, a, a strong faith and a good person. And, the, uh, you know, he was just a good person away from all this. Like I said, the man in black stuff and the intimidator stuff. And yeah, he was, a, he was a tough racer, but away from that, he cared deeply for people. And I know that to be firsthand. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, I, I draw a lot of corollaries or comparisons and, you know, some people might may laugh when I uh, what I'm about to say, but uh, I know I've read this uh, several times over the years. There was a lot of similarity, even though they were apples and oranges when it came to their professions. But there was a lot of similarity between uh, Dale Senior 
and Elvis Presley, because, you know, like, like uh, you mentioned about some of the things that Dale Sr. did for you and your family, and obviously a lot of other people, and he didn't want to have the credit. I mean, the, the fact that he was an usher, I never even knew that either. I mean, that, that, that blows my mind. I mean, just watching, I would have loved to watch him, you know, go, you know, from pew to pew and, you know, uh, uh, you know, the collection basket and all that kind of thing. But, but, you know, I draw a lot of comparisons and I've read this, like I said, about Earnhardt having a lot of similarities to Elvis Presley, because Elvis, you know, he was very giving. He did a lot of things, a lot of charity things. I mean, yeah, there was a lot of um, uh, stories about how he'd give Cadillacs away to, you know, his friends and family and all that kind of thing. But, you know, he would take care of a lot of people uh, that never, you know, he, he didn't want to have any credit for it. He didn't want people to know that he was, you know, behind that. And Earnhardt was very much the same way. And, you know, you, you see that in a lot of NASCAR drivers, uh, you know, especially in the past, maybe not so much, you know, of the, of the current era. I mean, there's certainly some guys that are, uh, you know, that they, they want to give back and uh, they don't want to, you know, be re renowned for that or, you know, acknowledged for, it. they just want to, you know, do what they feel is right. But it, it, it says a lot about Earnhardt's personality that he was that kind of guy that, you know, uh, you know, gave, gave of himself, but he didn't want to, let others know that it was him that was doing it. You know, like, like we have seen with you and your case and with your wife and that, I mean, he, it, it says a lot about the man for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I know of another story uh, where a young boy uh, had written a letter to Dale to the dealership and this child, I don't know the, the age, I think seven, eight years old, but he wrote a letter to Dale and said, listen, here's the deal. My mom, uh, doesn't have a car to go to work. And it was a very sincere, very genuine letter. It wasn't just taking advantage of, of the situation, but mm -hmm. he was saying to him, my mom just needs something to go to work. Is there some way you can help? And again, this is a seven or eight year old child. And of course he's like, sure, I got a car dealership and I've got used cars and, and without uh, letting anybody really know what was going on. Cause he didn't want credit for it. He found the best used vehicle out there that he could give and just had it delivered to her. No strings, no questions asked, you know, had it, uh, make sure it was, uh, sound, uh, mechanically and make sure it had plenty of gas in it and, and gave it to her. And he didn't want any credit for it. Just, I'm just trying to help because there was a time in his life where it really did come down to, uh, do I eat or do I pay the power bill? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, but again, and I think there were some regrets there too that he felt in his heart because he did put racing ahead of some things, um, you know, looking back. And we, I think we've all, we all have regrets in our lives that uh, you look back and think, did I play that exactly right? And you, you can say yes to some things, no to some things. But, you know, I mean, Dale... He really, if you look back at his life, I mean, he really just, it was either race or work in this cotton mill that I don't want to work in. I mean, he yeah. hated that cotton mill. He really, really, he just, you could look in his eyes and say, I had to get out of there. I just did not want to do that. And so as fate would have it, he was able to get to the right people and, and showcase the talent that he had on the short tracks, uh, around the North Carolina area. And then, um, uh, and then move it on to the, uh, to the cup series. And again, the good Lord was with him in the right places and he, his talent was in the right places. 
And you know, a quick funny story. The first time I ever met Dale, I was running a limited sportsman car at Caraway Speedway and he was in the late models. And I mean, I, you know, I, I, he was coming across a fence and I was going over that same fence and I shook his hand and I said, hi, Dale. Hey buddy. Hey, and that was it. <laughs> and then as time went, this was back in 1978. And then I started writing in 83. And of course I kidded him about it later. I said, I met you one time at a racetrack and, and I was a driver and you were a driver. And he said, well, how'd you do as a driver? I said, not so good <laughs> <laughs> because you know, you did way better than I did. Uh, you know, we're just picking about that, but, uh, gosh, there's so many stories. I mean, we could do a three hour show here, but you know, real quick, you talked about Elvis and when we were in Japan together a couple of times, the first year, I didn't go the first year in 97, 96. I went the second two years, but uh, very quickly sitting down, eating breakfast and by myself and uh, someone come up behind me and kicked the crap out of my chair. And I thought, <laughs> who in the world? And I looked around, it was Earnhardt. I said, what are you doing? I said, what does it look like I'm doing? I'm eating breakfast. <laughs> he said, can I sit down with you? And I said, sure you can. And he sat down he said, you know what the cool part about this is? I said, what? He said, nobody knows me over here. <laughs> I said, okay. He said, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just that I, I can just rely, you know, I'm not, I'm not being pulled in 12 directions over here. I mean, I just love the fans. Don't get me wrong. He, he, he said that he said, I just, you know, over here, I could just kind of relax a little bit. And so we talked about the farm. We talked about cows. We talked about, you know, some stuff I was working on. And, you know, he was just good old Dale, you know, and had breakfast. He, I said, hey, I got to talk to you about some stuff. He said, well, come on right now. I got plenty of time over here, man. I have nothing to do. And so they had this little small bungalow type places for all the drivers to, uh, you know, to hang out. These little, I don't know. 16 by 20 little buildings or maybe a little bit bigger 20 by 24 type buildings and so i said okay well I'll, he said come on now we can just talk about some stuff i had some interview stuff to do so we went in there he slipped off his cowboy boots we just you know watched some stuff on tv and just laughed and cut up there were some young ladies japanese ladies singing and he thought that was kind of funny we sat there and he signed some hero cards we talked, we just hung out and it was, and you said Elvis. And to me, that was sort of like playing guitars with Elvis. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It was just yeah. like that really special time that we had together. And then I left after children's come in for a little bit and hung out. And then he left to go do something with a car or whatever. And then we just hung out. And then the reason I left is because he laid down on the couch, went to sleep <laughs> and I said, well, it's time to go. But, you know, I, it was just so much fun because that was a side of Dale I hadn't seen in a while. Because that uh, over here, 36 races, he was pulled and pulled and pulled, which is fine. I'm not knocking that. But over there, he just, he said, man, I'm just, this is so cool. I have nowhere to be, nowhere to go. This is cool. We can hang out. And I just thought, man, this is, this, it really was a great experience for me. Right, right. And right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'll always, always remember that and how much fun that was to just, hang out with my friend, Dale Earnhardt, not the race car driver, Dale Earnhardt. And that was, that was uh, a great experience uh, over there with him. It was fun. Right. right. I, you know, going back to a minute about Osterland and um, correct me if I'm wrong, 
didn't Humpy Wheeler have a, a big part of that whole deal where wasn't he promoting Earnhardt to, to come into the Cup Series? And didn't he get Earnhardt and Osterlin together? He had some kind of involvement, didn't he? I'm not sure about that. I know it's possible. Yeah, possible. Yeah. Uh, I I know that uh, he and uh, Osterlin met and if I'm telling this correctly, and I may not be, I think I am. At first, Dale sort of turned him down, and and Teresa's like, wait, 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 you need to go find him in the parking lot and talk to him because that's that's your ticket. Right. At first, I don't think Dale uh, really recognized him as being the person he needed to drive for. I think Teresa had a big part of that to say that's the person you need to go contact. You need to rate, go out. And there's a restaurant somewhere. I, if I'm not telling it incorrectly, and just like go after him and go talk to him. Now, I think that's the way it came down, but Humpy could have been part of that. Yes. Yeah. I think, I think if a memory serves me correctly, it was, I want to say it was maybe 77, maybe 78. Some, it was just before the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, Dale wound up uh, cooking up with the Osterlin. Uh, and I just seem to recall that there was some kind of connection between Humpy and Osterlin. I don't know if it was yeah. Osterlin was looking for a, a for a good driver or what, but I I, I seem to recall that. I, but I, I do know this, Jerry. I know that uh, that uh, in the beginning in 1978, now Will Cronkite was running the number 96 car. Willie T. Ribs was going to drive the car and he couldn't get the car fast enough mm-hmm. and at Charlotte. And that was a deal that Humphrey had put together. And so Harold Johnson was uh, the sportscaster for one of the Charlotte TV stations. And he no more had said that, you know, Willie T is going back to California and that the phone rang and it was Dale calling Will saying, can I drive your car? And Will said, well, wait a minute. It's not really my deal. It's Humpy's deal. And Dale's basically said, I'll call you back. And he called Humpy and said, can I drive the car? And so Humpy calls Will, you okay if he drives the car? One of those deals back and right. forth. Right. And as it turns out, uh, Will uh, said, sure, he can, the, he can drive my car. So he said, I'll be there. It's 55 miles to your house. I'll be there in 45 minutes. <laughs> or those deals. And he had, and this is, this, this was, uh, you know, something that came together very quickly, but now, you know, Humpy was instrumental in helping Dale get initial rides. Um, but in 75, now Dale was driving for Ed and Agree, which was a back marker car. And that came about because Ed saw him drive at Metro Atlanta and saw how great he was and said, well, there's a backup car in the corner if you want to drive it, but I don't think you can qualify it. And he said, yeah, I can, if you'll let me drive it. And he did. And he finished 22nd and 75 at 600. But, uh, you know, he was just that good. I mean, he, he had a knack for it, but when he drove, I'm uh, digressing here, but when he drove for Will, he got to the shop and had this little kid with him named Dale Earnhardt Jr., four-year-old kid, said, put him in the front seat with him. <laughs> said, you okay? Everything all right? Yep. Okay. Because he kept working on the car. And they worked four hours, four or five hours on the car to get it right, to get the seat mounted. And then the next day they went to Charlotte and uh, qualified the car. And he, you know, he drove for Will that weekend, but they did a lot of work on the car uh, to get it ready. But, you know, Humpy was instrumental in getting 
Dale in a car initially in the seventies, but you gotta remember Dale was a little rough around the edges yeah. in the beginning. And, uh, he knew how to drive a car, but he needed some work as far as public relations went, you know, he needed a little bit of schooling as to how to get to sponsors and talk to sponsors and those types of things. And that's where Humpy was instrumental in helping him to polish himself a little bit. Right. Great behind the wheel, great pushing the throttle, but he needed to uh, get and see Ralph. I'm not knocking Ralph at all, but he, you know, he needed, he needed some Ralph needed some pilot. You know what I'm saying? And and maybe Dale did also. Right. And as time went on, he was very, very good at, at talking with sponsors. As time went on, Dale, Dale was. Well, you know, speak, speaking of sponsors, I, I've got to ask you this. And this is something that's always confounded me. You know, Earnhardt goes, to, hooks up with Osterlin. They win, wind up winning the championship with Doug Ricker. At the 20, I think Ricker was, I think, 20 years old as a crew chief at the, at the time in 1980. Mm-hmm. And then the bottom falls out the next year with Osterlin. I, I, I don't know, it was a sponsorship deal. There just wasn't enough money. And, you know, Dale eventually winds up moving over to Childress and then eventually to Bud Moore and then back to Childress and, and that kind of thing. But I never could figure out what happened from, and it, I don't think it was Earnhardt's fault. I, I just don't know what, why Osterlin lost the you know essentially lost the team lost the sponsorships i mean do you do you have any insight into that at all because i mean you yeah. think a guy wins a championship yeah. in 1980 he would you know they, they would have been set for the next several years and it wasn't the case well what what really happened on that deal was there was a gentleman out of kentucky jd stacy came in and basically sponsored four or five teams and had you know tons of money who wanted to come into nascar and he ended up buying the team and he, and Dale walks into the, to the team one day in 81 and says, who are you? And he said, Hey, I'm JD Stacy. I just bought the team. He's like, what, you know, really? I, I didn't know. Right. And, and that really hurt Dale because they were, he wanted to work with, with Osterlin for several years. Like he wanted to work, you know, with children's. Right. And so, so well, what, what happened? And Osterlin was like, well, I won a championship. We some races together we won rookie of the year and then we won the championship what else is there i want to go back to california and work on my businesses it was fun been there done that <laughs> and so dale's like well okay so what do i do now and he you know it was kind of like an oil and water situation when jd stacy they just didn't get along with each other at all and so he goes to richard who he had raced against for several years and said what do i do next and Richard Childress is like, well, I got an idea. And this, I think, was prompted slightly with, with R.J. Reynolds, maybe maybe a little bit. But they get together and say, look, I'm, I'm not one to race, and you got a lot of talent, and you could bring, you know, some Wrangler sponsorship to me, and I need the sponsor, and I'm, you know, this one thing led to another. So for 10 races in 1981, uh, Childress and, and Earnhardt get together. And they have mediocre success, but I mean, it sort of puts a foundation under Childress and Earnhardt. But in Earnhardt, uh, you know, he does well, but then Childress says, look, I'm not sure if I've got the equipment to match your talent. So why don't you go over here to Bud Moore for a couple of years and let me see what I can do? And that was a big, that was a big risk that Childress took to say, you go away and maybe by 84, I'll have what I need. My cars aren't matching your talent, but let me see what I can do. 
And so, you know, that's that's what happened. But the, the funny part of the story is in 82 and 83, he goes, Earnhardt goes to Bud Moore and Bud Moore goes back to Childress and said, I don't know about this RC. He said, this boy can tear up some equipment. Are you sure you want him back? <laughs> <laughs> He's like, uh, yeah, he can blow some motors. And he can tear up some stuff. And so, yeah, I kind of like him. I do want him back. So, okay, he's going to tear up some stuff. Just know that going in. So Ricky Rudd goes to Richard Childress and Rudd's conservative, but he's a great race car driver. He gets Richard's first victory. Uh, You know, Dale wins a couple, a couple of three races with Bud uh, in 82 and 83. Then, then uh, Dale goes back to Richard Childress in 84 and the rest is history. Then they start to click and sponsorship comes back with Wrangler from 84. And then of course by 80, you know, 87, 88, actually good comes on and then they really start to click. And then they start winning six of the seven championships that Dale has and 67 of Dale's victories of the 76 victories overall that Dale has goes to Childress too. But, you know, uh, and you have to think back. I mean, that was a gutsy move on Childress's part because he might not have ever gotten Dale back. Yeah. But, you know, they may have had a handshake deal says, I promise you I'll be back in 84. But it was, it was honesty on Childress's part to say, I just don't have the equipment or, the, or what I need yet. But if you'll come back in 84, I'll have everything I need. I, I thought that's it's very admirable on on Childress's part to say, I don't have what I need to put you in a winning car yet, but I will. Yeah. And that's as they say, the rest is history. But you know, well, you know, the the, the on one hand, you're right. I mean, it was a big gamble for Childress to uh to do that. And it was a, a gamble for you know for Earnhardt to <clears throat> excuse me, have the faith that he had in in Childress, but at the same time. It's not really a surprise because Childress, you know, as he became a success in racing uh, as a team owner, he was very methodical, much like the way he was a race car driver, very methodical. You know, he thought out things. He he was a big picture kind of guy. He, you know, like with with this, the example you're giving them where he said, well, you know, go race for Bud for a couple of years and then you know, I'll bring you back. Well, he saw what he had there. He knew what he had, but he also knew what his limitations were. But he also could see, you know, down the road two, three, four, five years, what potentially could happen. It kind of, it's kind of like the way Earnhardt used to be able to see the draft, you know, he, he, he would yeah. be able to do it like, you know, almost nobody could. And Childress is kind of the same way with his business acumen, um, you know, how he was able to uh, determine what he, th- you know, what he would have, you know, down the road as opposed to what he had currently. And so, I mean, I, you know, as, as talented of a guy as Earnhardt was behind the wheel, I mean, it was just such a perfect marriage between him and, and uh, Childress because Childress, you know, he knew, I mean, he was not only a, a former race car driver at that point, but he also was a great owner, a great businessman. I mean, they were the, you know, and, you know, Richard taught Dale a lot about marketing, about, you know, um, the intimidator, you know, the image and all that kind of thing. And then, of course, you know, Dale made Richard a very rich man with all the wins he had, too, as well, in the championships, too. Yeah, sure did. And, you know, something else they had in common there. Both of their fathers had passed away at an early age. They they did not grow up uh, with a lot of money. Um, they they you know their their backgrounds were very similar, and I think that had a lot to do with it as well. They 
they knew they knew the struggles you know growing up um they were you know they they raced hard they worked hard you know so that that had a lot to do with it too they they didn't have like i said they had very little money uh, their backgrounds again were very very similar so i think that had a tremendous amount to do but you know there was a lot that went into the early 60s and in the 70s, you know, a contract in racing didn't come into the picture until 77, 78, when Darrell Waltrip and Dygaard came in. They didn't have contracts. When drivers went to a particular race team, it was a handshake deal. Right. And it was ironclad. When you went, when Pearson went with the Bird Brothers and stayed there seven, eight years, uh, it was a handshake. And Bobby Allison and with all these race teams. And when you said, I'm driving your race car, and I'll be back in two years. Okay. And as a handshake, and that was, I mean, that was gold in those days. And you right. didn't, you didn't need a contract. So when Waltrip comes in and with Dygaard and there's a 50 or 60 page contract in front and says, what's that? That looks like a phone book. <laughs> well, that's not a phone book. That's a contract. And, right. I mean, they didn't have a deal with that. And so that that's the first time a contract ever came to a driver team owner was with Waltrip and Dygaard. And uh, so anyway, that, you know, that the handshake between Earnhardt and Childress, uh, you know, at the end of 81 was said, I'm coming back. I'll see you in January of 84. He's like, okay, see you then. Well, you and know, that's what you happened. Know. And uh, yeah. I'm sorry. I interrupted you. No, I was just going to say that that's, that's, that was just like a 60 page contract with signatures at the bottom and, and black ink. It's like that. I'll be back. Okay. See you then. But, you know, you also have to give a lot of credit to Bud Moore because, I mean, he he could see the talent Earnhardt had. And, you know, I'm sure he could have found some way to maybe keep Earnhardt around, you know, from a financial standpoint. But, you know, Earnhardt was the kind of guy that his word was his bond. If he says he's coming back to Childress in 84, he's going to come back. Yeah. But, but I mean, I give a lot of credit to Bud Moore because, you know, he, he essentially let – I don't want to say he let Earnhardt away, get away, but, you know, in a sense he did get, let him get away, but – for a good reason though, because there was an agreement yeah well you know what too jerry i mean he probably went to bud and said here's the deal and uh, i'm i'm very appreciative of the ride you're going to give me in the next two years but i'm telling you now january 1 of 1984 i'm i'm out of here because i've yeah. already promised richard uh that i'm coming back and you know you got to understand these guys raced hard uh, on the racetrack, but they had, uh, you know, as far as running against one another, but as far as being in the garage against one another too, I mean, it, you got to understand these guys are just ironclad family, you know, cause you see each other 36 weeks a year and you race against each other hard, but the, the very people will come to your aid if you're in trouble that, that's the very guys that will come right there to help you out is the guys you race against and so yeah i mean i admire that i you know sometimes you mess up the works when you get so many contracts and so many uh layers of people that you got to go through and all this kind of stuff and i think it gets kind of you know messes up the works and back in those days this, it was very simple i'm coming to drive your car uh, for the next week's race. Okay. And I mean, seriously, think about it. Pearson goes to the Wood Brothers and that, that deal come together at Darlington in April 16th, 
72, and he comes in and wins. And they knew it was like, okay, well, handshake, you're going to be here for the next seven years. It's so, I mean, they didn't need a contract. Right. They knew he was 105, and they didn't need all that. And so, anyway, enough. But I'm just, it's just so admirable that, that, that could go to him and say, but I'm driving, we'll do the best we can. I'm going to church, period. You know, really cool that they could just do that. Right, 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 right. You know, obviously when, when Dale went back to Childress, the rest is history in 80, you know, when he went back to 84, the rest is history. Uh, you know, there, he developed, you know, a reputation that uh, it was at the right time, if you will, because right around that time was when Petty started you know, to lose some of his uh, uh, success and Earnhardt kind of, I hate to say use, use a phrase, filled the void, but, you know, he became the next big star. I mean, you obviously had Petty, you had mm-hmm. Pearson back in the day, but, you know, Earnhardt became the next big star. You, you mentioned that you had a lot of uh, interesting other facts about Earnhardt that you uh, came across in your research. Tell me some of the things that you did find out, you know, yeah. during his tenure from 84 on until, you know, he sadly lost okay. his life in 2001. The, the, yeah, this is something that was that's really cool that I just happened by accident to come across, I guess by accident, but it's just something that really stood out to me. And it's, it's just so amazing to me. Okay, let me paint the picture for you here. Sure. July 4th, 1986. Uh, Dale is uh, again driving for Richard Childress. They're at uh, the Firecracker 400, which back in those days it was a 10 o'clock in the morning race, whatever day the fourth was on, whether it be a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, whatever day, they would run the race at 10 a.m., which is the coolest thing in the world because we'd all be on the beach by 2.30, 3 o'clock. <laughs> and, you know, because it was so hot down there. It was so fun, man, because we'd be on the, you know, the race would be a 10, be over by two, right? Stories written by three, you're on the beach by 3.30, four o'clock. I mean, it was great. It was just so, so cool. All right. So July 4th, 1986, Earnhardt's running top five, Buddy Baker's leading the race. He has an engine that blows, Earnhardt does, and he's going into turn one, it gets in his own oil and he crashes the Chevrolet that he's in number three, good Wrangler Chevrolet crashes into the wall and nurses it back to the pits. Okay. That happens. Finishes 27th. All right. He goes for the next, and I get, this is so cool. He goes for the next eight and a half years, 238 races without crashing another car out of a race. Can you imagine that? I mean, okay. Now, here's a caveat there's times okay in bristol in 87 he got into a wreck dover in 87 i think he got into one bristol in 91 there's been in charlotte he had some some problems okay but he didn't he didn't crash out of a race okay he did crash but he was able to nurse the car to the finish he was running at the end of the race okay there was a handful i could count them on one hand the times that he wrecked and he was nursing the car at the end of the race. All right. But 238 races over the next eight and a half years until, until August 21st, 1994, he crashed again 
out of the race. Okay. So you went from July 4th, 1986 at Daytona until August 21st, 1994, a crash at Michigan. And he finished 37th and he crashed on lap 54 after getting taken out by another driver, which was Todd Bodon. Okay. Todd lost, you know, the air on his car, whatever, not trying to blame Todd, but he just got into a two car crash on lap 54. 238 races without crashing out of a race. To me, that is that just blows my mind. And and here's another thing for you, too, that says a lot for the team. Okay, in 1987, they had a DNF for engine troubles twice that year. And it came at Dover and Riverside. 88 DNF one time because of an engine failure. Now these are not crashes. These mm-hmm. are engine failures. Right. Okay. So two and 87, one in 88 for a Pocono two at Char- uh, in 1989 at Charlotte. Both of them came at Charlotte because of an engine and a camshaft 1990, one DNF at Dover one and 90, 91, two engine failures that came at Dover and had a valve problem at Charlotte 1992. They had not Good a year in 92 because of engine Talladega and Martinsville. 1993 uh, had a, uh, two DNFs all year uh, coming at Martinsville and uh, had a rear end gear. Also, both of those came at Martinsville, engine trouble and a rear end gear at Martinsville again. And then 1994, the Talladega race uh, early in the year, and then the crash at Michigan. Okay. So from 86, to 1994, 238 races, they didn't crash a car. I mean, it just blows my mind that uh, crash out of a race. Okay. They did crash a few on, I could count them on one hand, but to crash out of a race, 238 races. I just, to me, that is just amazing. So yes, they had a body shop, but when they went back to the body shop, they painted the front end the back end, or they had to redecal the car because you get these rocks and things that come up on the car and, you know, scratch up the front ends and things like that. But I mean, you know, Childress had to have his feet propped up somewhere because he didn't have to pay for a bunch of bent sheet metal and bent roll bars and bent things, you know, and broken motors. I mean, he had to fix a few motors, but I'm talking about for crashes. I don't know. That just, I thought to myself, you've got to be kidding me because a lot of these teams, you know, they would crash. Some of these guys would crash six, seven, eight times a, a year. And I, I just, I just thought, how cool is that? So he was way out front or I, it had to be driver skill. It had to be out front, it had to, whatever the case is. Again, I'm rambling 238 races in an eight and a half year period. It's just amazing. Well, you know, the thing that, that that's Earnhardt, there you right, go. That's Earnhardt. That's right. But you know what, what surprised me, Ben, about that, and it is an incredible stat, is that, you know, we see so many times a driver gets taken out or collected in a wreck. And did he have some kind of like a force field around him that nobody went, would take him out? I mean, in that period <laughs> of time, it almost seemed that way because, you know, <clears throat> the, the DNFs you talked about were all mechanical i mean you know engine issues i mean yeah but for him to, to not you know uh you know be involved in a wreck or be taken out by somebody else that's just 
it, it's that makes it even more amazing of a fact right. that, that he went that long. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it says a lot for his team too. Now, again, to be, to qualify this, there were times that he did get into crashes. They were able to, I guess, rip a, a fender away or take a hood off or something like that. And he was running at the finish. He might've been seven, eight laps down or something to that effect to qualify what I'm saying, but to do 238 races that the car was not damaged enough for him to, to be crashed out. I don't know. I just, that's just amazing to me uh, that, uh, you know, he, he was able to survive that many crashes. So, I mean, because again, you know, you had to have been uh, in the right place at the right time. You had to be out front. You had to be far enough back. Uh, you had to be, able to see it coming maybe that's a good way to put it to to position yourself on the track to where you were out of it uh you know some i guess some drivers uh could not react quickly enough or something be you know in the middle of something uh we've seen some teams that you know couldn't even get through speed weeks without having crashed three cars at speed weeks before the 500 you know what i'm saying so right. I, you know i I just think if you look at how many races there were over that length of time, uh, I just think it's amazing. Truly amazing. It is. It is. Any, any other, uh, in, you know, we're getting near the end of the show here. Any other interesting facts that you came up with about Earnhardt? I mean, we've, we've gotten through quite a few that a lot of things I did not know about. And of course the professor is, I like to call you the professor. Yeah. You found him for us, but any, any <laughs> other, any other interesting well, tidbits? Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it brought something else to mind, too. Back in 1997 at Darlington, South Carolina, it's the weekend that he had a problem in the car. When they waved the green flag uh, for the start of the race, uh, you know, I, I want to call it a seizure. I don't, I'm not exactly sure what happened inside the car, but he was having trouble getting back to the pits. And he radioed and said, I'm, I, can't, I can't find my pit stall. I can't find you. And it was sort of deemed a seizure of some type. Um, so he went to the infield care center, Mike Dillon, who is this, the father of Austin and Ty Dillon, who was running the cup series, or excuse me, the Bush series at the time, now Xfinity. Uh, he got in the car and finished the race that day, but he had a battery of tests done and they never could figure out what was going on. Uh, and they were concerned because, you know, Ralph had passed away at the age of 45 of a heart attack. So they were trying to figure out what exactly was going on there. Well, during that particular time of testing, they had determined that Dale, when he, and when he was actually driving the race car, and I think I, I find this to be fascinating too, when he was driving the race car, his, his pulse would go down, not up. And so, I mean, isn't that amazing how if you're driving 200 miles an hour around Daytona and you're so comfortable in the race car, I mean, for me, mine would go through the roof, I'm sure. Mine would be like, I don't know, 250 or 300 beats or something crazy. But his would go down, you know, when he was in those stressful situations at, you know, five wide going down some turn at Talladega, you know, they determined his, he had low blood, low blood pressure. Instead of high blood pressure. Right. <laughs> it's like, really? I mean, he was just cool as cool could be. You know what I'm saying? And 
So, you know, they, they, some theories were that, you know, maybe the blood pressure went down is what made that happen. And so uh, put that in perspective real quick. You're in a car, you're getting ready to around Darlington. I don't know, 165, 70 miles an hour around some of your best friends. And, you know, for 367 laps and your blood pressure goes down. I, I don't know. I just, <laughs> it's like, that seems weird to me too. Well, what's so, this, weren't they, they were talking about that with uh, Ross Chastain this past weekend. Yeah. You know, yeah. And that's what, yeah, that's what, that's what made me think of it. And yeah, I don't know. These, these guys are a strange breed and <laughs> in a happy way. I mean, yeah, I thought about that. I did. I thought about that. It's like, it's so the blood pressure goes down when you're in that, but I think, I guess you're in a zone maybe, or you're so used to doing it or, I don't know, but in his case, it was, uh, you know, he just is cool and comfortable in that setting, maybe as he could be. And uh, th so they never really determined what what caused that one uh, one situation. But, you know, he said later himself, he said he was joking and maybe somewhat serious because there is a there seems to be a tie into this that he said, you know what caused that? You know what caused? I said, no, what caused it? Tomatoes. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> it's like, yeah, the tomatoes, and there's something in tomatoes that makes you have that problem. It's like, sure, Earnhardt, whatever <laughs> you say. Well, as time has gone on, there seems to be some type of, uh, you know, possible correlation between seizure activity and tomatoes. So maybe he was onto something. I don't know. <laughs> so there you go. But not sure if it was an actual seizure, but they didn't know what happened, but something did not compute. And he, he did also say that he had a really bad migraine type headache that day. So it could have been a migraine related thing. We don't know. We, we will never know now. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, we, there you go. That's there right. you go, Jerry. That's right. <laughs> well, we, we've covered such a great amount of ground and, you know, the one thing that I love talking about Earnhardt is that, you know, even though he's, you know, gone from us now for over 21 years, um, it, it never gets old. You yeah. never get, it never gets old hearing the stories about him. And like I said earlier, you know, you, you learn something almost every single time that you didn't know about him. I mean, he was just that much of a multifaceted guy. I mean, you know, he had such a, a great, uh, you know, unique career, uh, the way he came up from virtually nothing to become, you know, the, the great success that he was, uh, you know, the, the, the going from basically dirt, dirt poor to a multimillionaire. And, you know, he, the, I guess the best thing that, uh, and I'll leave, you know, I'll leave, you know, my part of the show today with this is that one thing that I always admired about Earnhardt is that, you know, and you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier too, in front of the cameras, in front of the me, you know, their microphones, he was Mr. Tough Guy, but away from the microphones and, and the, the cameras in that he, he was, he was a, just a down to earth kind of guy. He really yeah, was. He was very genuine person. I, I say that from the heart. I say it. Honestly, he was, he had that persona about him and, you know, had to put up that wall around himself sometimes. But when the wall came down, he was just as genuine as you and I, he was just a very kind, loving person. And yeah, he, he was difficult. He was a pain in the butt sometimes. <laughs> and he, he was very, he, very controlling at times, I got to say, but 
at the same time, he was a very loving person. And I, I, I'll always believe that about him. And he certainly was to me. He was very kind to me in a lot of ways. You know, he reminds me in a way, kind of like A.J. Foyt, because Foyt was, you know, very much of a, um, uh, a tough guy, if you will. But, you know, and he did a lot of things behind the scenes like Earnhardt that he didn't want to, you know, get credit for. And, you know, he, he had a, a heart of gold, much like Earnhardt as well, too. So it, it must yeah. be the racing thing. It's got to be the racing thing. Yeah. Well, one thing to add, Jerry, too, I think when you until you're a superstar, you want to be a superstar. And then once you're a superstar, you'd give anything not to be. Yeah. I think that's part of it. I think you get pulled in so many directions. You think how, how great it would be to be a superstar until you are one. And then you can't, you know, you think, boy, how great it would be if I just could go eat a cheeseburger by myself. Yeah. And not, you know, and by the way, speaking of cheeseburgers, there's a place in Kannapolis called Whataburger. <laughs> he would, he would drive a hundred miles to get a Whataburger. He would, he was like, gotta have a Whataburger. I'll, you know, he loved those. It's just a little joint right there in Kannapolis. That was his favorite place to go eat. So there you go. We got to get them for a sponsor. final words. Sure. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, well, I'd love friend, it. Yes. Oh, and they're great too, by the way. Well, they're, they're not, they're not an in and out burger. They're not an in and out double, double. That's my thing. I got to have my, yeah. I, but I, next time you come, next time you come to, to North Carolina, come to Charlotte and I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll buy you a water burger next time you're in the area. How about that? Okay. Sounds good. Well, I'll be down there in a couple months. You know, my daughter's All getting right. married in June. So I'll definitely be, I'll take okay. you as well. We'll, we'll make it a date. We'll All right. Make, so. We'll make it happen. All right. All right, my friend, I think that's going to put a wrap on episode number 57 of a lifetime in NASCAR podcast and uh, really enjoy this one. Uh, you know, he, how can you not enjoy talking about Earnhardt? I mean, he's just the guy that you, yeah. know, you can talk about him. I mean, 50 years from now, we'll be long gone, but people will still be talking about him. And yes, sir. It, it kind of like Elvis Presley, like I mentioned earlier, he, he just kind of transcends time. And you know, even though he hasn't been with us now for over 20 years, He'll always be with us. You know, he's the legacy of the thing that they All right, my friend, listen, you take it easy. Have a good week, and we'll be back with episode 58 of a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast next week, right here. So take care, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. A Lifetime in NASCAR is hosted by Ben White and Jerry Bunkowski and produced by Josh Mall. A Lifetime in NASCAR is a proud member of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network and is available on all major podcasting platforms. Visit GroovyMotorsports.com for more shows and don't forget to check out the Out of the Groove Weekly Viewer's Guide. The Weekly Viewer's Guide is fresh every week of the season and includes exclusive content from myself and Ben White you won't find anywhere else. Get it every week. It's all fresh, it's all free, and it's all on GroovyMotorsports.com. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. 
Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at ForneyInd.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, Ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.